2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a
1: podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio. And I am Julia Kublinska. On the podcast today, we are joined by Jerry Z, who is jointly appointed assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology and the High Meadows Environmental Institute at Princeton. Jerry will be talking about his new book, Continent in Dust Experiments in a Chinese Weather System, which was published um, this year, 2022, by the University of California Press.
2: Continent and Dust offers a political anthropological account of strange weather. It is an ethnography of China's meteorological contemporary, the transformed weather patterns whose formations and fallouts have accompanied decades of breakneck economic development. Focusing on intersections among statecraft, landscape, atmosphere, and society, Jerry Z's research is beautifully articulated, taking the reader on a journey from state engineering programs that attempt to choreograph the movement of mobile dunes in the interior to newly reconfigured bodies and airspace in Beijing and beyond. Timely and original, Continent and Dust considers contemporary China as a weather system to reconsider how we can better understand the rise of China, literally, as the China itself rises into air. We will be discussing the book in more detail with Jerry Z, who we have the pleasure of joining on the show today. Jerry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me and for your time. And I'm so excited uh, and grateful that you both had time to to read and engage with the work, which I spent a long time on. And so I'm excited to talk about it. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yes, we were also very excited to, to move forward with this and and read your book, which was so engaging and beautifully articulated. And um, such an important piece of work. But before we move forward into the, before we delve into the content of the book, I'd like to begin by asking you about your research and research interests. Sorry, your background and research interests. What led you to study China's weather system?
0: Um. Sure, yeah, I I came to the study of environments in China actually somewhat accidentally. Um, I. I I thought I was going to be a linguistic anthropologist and I was going to work on the cultural politics of language in China. Um, My own academic background before I got a PhD in anthropology was in linguistics. Um, And that's sort of how I thought I was going to be approaching my future research. Um, And I was interested in sort of very classic questions at the time of sort of interpretation and meaning and culture and difference, this very sort of post-structuralist, textualist way of thinking about culture and its politics. I ended up living in China for a year after I graduated college because I was um, my grandparents had moved to Shanghai at that time. they I had grown up with them. They were sort of half in the u s. where I grew up and half in you know in Asia. And they moved back to Shanghai at that time. So I moved there too, and i and I at the time I was working at uh, an environmental NGO in China, where, um, among other things, they had a project on large-scale tree planting to prevent dust storms. Uh, the, the project was based in Inner Mongolia, which is one of the main field sites that uh, the project ended up being about. Um, uh, but what, what really struck me at that time, even though that time, was that um, people, as they were engaging in these tree planting programs, were really starting to think about this sort of shift in thinking about what the political and sort of territorial quality of the land was right and so um, you would both be able to talk about tree planting as this sort of like local economic and ecological intervention that was about sort of trying to resolve some of the contradictions that had been sort of you know broiling through the chinese countryside and especially in pastoral regions like inner mongolia right um and these sort of programs to Sort of transform people who were, you know, formerly pastoralists into sort of ecological workers of different kinds, which is sort of a lot of what the first half of the book thinks is really interested in. Right, but at the same time, people were talking about these places completely in reference to them uh, to Beijing, which was, you know, a couple of hours downwind, right, um, or you know, a day or two downwind by by the movement of weather weather patterns. And you know, it started me thinking at that time about first, you know, how of unequipped I was as a person who was really just interested in these sort of questions of cultural meaning to actually to begin to think about some of the material questions that were being raised by these programs right um and I wanted to you know start thinking about actually the sort of reorganization of this idea of national territory um when all of a sudden these places that were sort of you know otherwise under like otherwise rendered as hinterlands or as the peripheries of the country start to really matter, but in terms of their meteorological relationship to other places that were more important, right? Um, That's sort of how I started getting into it. I mean, one of the things that was really, that really drove me in the first couple of years of this project was that, you know, um, in the anthropology that I was trained at the time, it was almost impossible actually to to explain to people what this project was, right? Um, And so a lot of, you know, because, you know, as we'll talk about later, I guess, like the, the, the project involves actually some reorientations to what we think about as like the political and how to study it. Um, there's some reorganizations of what we think about as the sort of proper object of anthropological inquiry. Right? Um, so what does it mean if we're not thinking about culture and meaning and politics in these sort of highly anthropocentric terms? Right? Um, and it really took me um, speaking with a lot of geographers. So my, my committee in graduate school is, you know, half geographers. And they were the ones who were really pushing me to, you know, ask these these questions that to me now feel absolutely foundational to some of my own thinking, right? Which is, like, what is the importance of materiality, and how, and what account of materiality would you have to have to be able to talk about actually the politics of these weird weather systems that are emerging all the time, right? Um, it was at the very beginning, I think, when 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 you know talking about something like climate change or things that feel very central now felt very weird. In, in anthropology because they seem to be the domain of sort of other fields right um and so you know the other thing that sort of brings me into this is you know uh starting from this sort of very linguistic and meaning-oriented way of thinking about things and then you know the discovery of materiality and especially the discovery of STS for me um, were really important for sort of starting to think about what kinds of other questions uh, you could be asking so I don't know, the project to me was really exciting. I mean, it was also that I just really liked Inner Mongolia. I thought it was it's just so different, you know, in terms of um, the places that I had been living in China, which are like Shanghai and Beijing, these sort of giant crowded cities, right? Um, and there was something about being Inner Mongolia that actually just really reminded me of being in California, kind of, which is where I'm from, uh, you know, just giant open spaces, um you know the weather like the the climate is much more temperate at least in the summertime you know um and so just a lot of things I I thought were really exciting and made me think at the time that like wow I really just want to think about this for you know many years too many
2: (laughs) that's really fascinating um I mean it's that, that kind of excitement and curiosity you had um, to, to 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 these regions of China and, and the materiality that you are working with, um, but on this topic of materiality, um, you look at you, your your research particularly looks, looks at dust, or more precisely, you refer to the Chinese word of dust, fengsha, so wind sand, um, which um, I really I really it's, it's really. I really appreciate that you use that kind of Chinese word throughout the book itself. Um, but can you tell us, um, uh, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what is sand and how it guided your ethnography along the dust, dust streams?
0: Thank you for that question. It's actually a question that I, I keep on thinking about right now, as I think in, you know, after having written the book and and really thinking about how in the process of writing it, um, wind sand became much more increasingly central to the way that i was thinking about what actually the project was and how how to organize the book and also how to organize my own thinking around you know um around doing ethnography but not wanting it to be sort of confined to some of the sort of um the stock list of you know human and non-human characters that we sort of um at yeah, right, I and to go back to the first question when we're when I, when I was thinking about whether I was trying to think about a way of having an ethnography that was extremely attentive to an actual empirical thing that was happening in the world, but not just have it be about you know, um, people's feelings about it, right? Um, and so I was really guided by it. so, so, so the idea of wind sand or feng sha was this thing, this 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 thing that was sort of hidden in plain sight while I was conducting research with people with groups of scientists and herders and engineers, right? Um, in the book, I argue that windsand is this really curious, shape-shifting, phase-shifting form of materiality um, that has certain material and political affordances that make it sort of interesting to think with, both for the ethnographer and the and the researcher, but also for all the other people who are sort of um, in different ways, sort of imbricated in the process through which through which feng shah operates, right, and through which through which it develops. Right. So I say in the book that um, it's a substance that's, but it's also a process, and it's also a relation, right? It's it's this relationship between wind and sand, which both have their own sort of materialist, geophysical, and historical kinds of you know attributes and affordances to them as well, right? Um, wind sand is. Uh, the thing that herders are talking about all the time, when they're talking about the ways that their own pastures are changing, right? Um, when they when they, when they look at the shape of a place that used to be a grassland and is now turning into dunes, what they're talking about is the interaction of wind and sand. Feng is a thing that physicists that I'm talking to and the sort of environmental engineers that I think of, that, that that I worked with um, were talking about when they were thinking about you know what kinds of engineering and scientific interventions would be necessary to intervene into the relationship between wind and sand. Right. Um, it's this expansive substance that also offers this extremely specific way of thinking about material transformation. Right. Um, and it articulates, I think for me, um, a lot of things that were really helpful for me in being able to pose what this, what the project was. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, it's this relational substance it gives you actually quite distinct sets of formations across different, uh, different phases of matter, right? So the book structure actually comes out of different phases and sort of geographies of how wind sand travels, right? Um, uh, and most importantly, I think for me is wind sand, the sort of collision of something atmospheric and something terrestrial in the same sort of phrase that suggests transformation and the relationship um, It's central to thinking about actually the sort of processual emergence and the sort of subsequent political reorientations that giant dust storms bring about, right? It offered me a way of thinking about concretely what the relationship between landscape and atmosphere was going to be. Okay. Um, one of the things that I, I just got really excited about, you know, when I, when I sort of realized it's like, you know, when people talk about dust storms, they're talking about this real substantial and political problem by which a landscape can become a weather formation, right? And, and wanting to think about um, actually the concreteness of that relation rather than a blurring, right, um, you know. Yeah. So, so one of the things that it gives me is a way of thinking about a form and a way of talking very specifically about how sort of, you know, a very specific kind of material relationship and process can come to matter in all these different ways.
2: Yeah. Um. Just now you were talking about change and political formation and... Um... That's one thing that your book really does um, concretely. It considers late socialism to inquire about, to inquire into how uh, reform and opening is an array of political, social, conceptual, and techno-scientific experiments. And in doing so, you look at how meteorological, how the meteorological contemporary becomes a way of making sense of late socialism. Um, maybe you could talk a bit more about your periodization of late socialism versus, for example, post-socialism. Um, what is the intervention into these typical periodizations, and why is it significant for you and your book?
0: Yeah, I think that's that was a really important question for me to think about. You know, um, I mean, later we'll talk about the sort of temporal politics and imaginaries that are kind of emerging with these weather systems, right? Um, But I think that I was really concerned in my thinking about this project with, actually, how do you tell a story about China that doesn't position it in relationship to a kind of transitionology, right? Um, A lot of my uh, training as a PhD student was with, um, you know, people who were working uh, on the former Soviet bloc, right? And, And coming out of a generation of people who were interested in... Uh, sort of post-soviet life, right? Um, and becoming very invested in this idea, you know that 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 whatever we could call socialism in the Eastern Bloc and in the USSR had ended, right and 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 wanting to be able to make that clear claim, you know, just sort of empirically in China, um, you know and, I, and then I was also trained, you know in this moment where a lot of my sort of mentors who think and worked in China, would sort of situate their idea of you know, this moment uh, in China, the moment that they were talking about in the early 2000s, right, as a moment of post-socialism, right, which is to say a moment that's after something. Right? Yeah. I was always a little bit wary of this way of talking about, talking about it because I think that um, first, I'm not, sh- I'm not certain that anthropologists should be in the business of deciding when a thing has started or ended Right. And making these kinds of big temporal claims. Right. Um, part of what, part of the reason I think that way is because there's so much investment, I think, in the U.S. in the idea that whatever, whatever situation is happening in China right now, it's a one that's um, in which one can only say that the form of socialism that exists there is completely cynical because it's ideologically disconnected from, let's say, like, you know, the, the high ideological, <laughs> you know, um, sort of. Um, peak of, let's say, like radical Maoism or something, right? And so I was trying to think about how could you talk about this moment in China without falling into that typological impulse where you're saying that socialism either exists or it doesn't, especially in the context in which the Chinese Communist Party continues to exist, right? And and you don't have the formal ending of socialism um, or of communism in China that you had, for instance, in other places, right? Um to me it always seemed like a bit of weird wishful thing like political science wishful thinking to think that socialism and we could definitively say that the socialist period was a period and that it's over right and so instead I, I started to think about different ways of trying to pull out different ways of talking about the sort of endurance of socialism without having to fall into the idea that you know socialism is defined by these six distinct set of political features or, you know, this sets this set of ideological orthodoxies, right? Instead of coming up with a definition of what socialism is, I was interested in coming up with an idea of how socialism works in practice and you know um, and how that continues to work, right? And so um, as you bring up, the way that I kind of got to that was through the figure of the experiment, right? Um, so the idea that um, you know, at least since the reform period, but I think, but in the book I argue even even before that one can trace out these different kinds of habits that we can call socialists, right? Uh, socialism is not necessarily an ideological orthodoxy, but a sort of orientation toward adapt- adapt- adaptability, of you know being really practical and trying to figure out how to deal with things on a kind of ad hoc and real-time basis, right? Um, the reason I got really interested in that, I think, was also because so much of what I was seeing ethnographically was all about people actually just throwing anything that they could at the wall to see what would stick, right. To see if there was a thing that could actually hold the earth in place or could blunt the wind, you know, that could intervene in the formation of wind sand. Yeah. Right. And, and, you know, against people um, who don't think too much about China, right. Who, who, who tend to think about, you know, at least at the time that I was being trained the, the idea that like China was like the, the communist party was about to always about to collapse into something else right? I was really interested in actually how flexible and enduring a particular kind of state formation could be, right? But one would have to track that through its experimental quality and not through its sort of, you know, um, sort of coherence, right? Um, And to think about a particular kind of state incoherence is actually a feature of how, you know, late socialism, as I'm imagining it, kind of works, right? So, yeah, that's that's sort of how I... And what one about thinking about that problem?
1: In that vein, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about socialist futures or the Chinese Communist Party imagination thereof? You um, And I'll quote directly from the book, which is very beautifully written, um, but you cite a, a some sort of official, I'm forgetting now uh, exactly, maybe you can tell us um, who this man is, but Panya says, China is not simply the lucky survivor of the 20th century's crisis in socialism, but in this century, it is socialism's mode of force. The future of socialist theory and systems is staked to China's success or failure. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that position and your own intervention, uh, perhaps in that type of logic.
0: Yeah. I, I, in the late 2000s, in the late 20 aughts, in the early 2010s, I think when some of uh, the sort of challenge of something like climate change was still kind of up in the air politically, um, you see this profusion of sort of state theorists who are trying to come up with a way of thinking about the apparent crisis in the environments in China and Across the world, um, in relationship to the sort of inherited uh, political orthodoxy of Marxism, Leninism, Maoism, right, and you and and one of the things I found really interesting about this moment is that you know China is usually presented sort of from outside of it as the sort of environmental hellscape that's sort of on the brink of environmental collapse all the time. But what was happening at that time was that there was enough ideological opening, political opening for, for, for the unsettled problem of environment, right, um, for people to actually start trying to think about whether and how there's a way for us to tell, you know, to come up with a way of theorizing the environmental and planetary future. It doesn't mean that it's just this sort of existential challenge for near the future of Chinese socialism, right? Which is to say you have all these people like Penya, who was a sort of environmental minister at that time, we're coming up with these white papers, right? And these sort of theoretical accounts that are circulating in sort of publicly in communist sort of theory circles, to try to figure out actually, you know, how do we make this thing climate change, which is usually announced as this Thing that's about to break China and the political system into this actual political opportunity where we can introduce um, climate change as actually the medium for the sort of continuation of the Chinese party. Right? So Penyeright is making this argument that I think is really kind of interesting. Um, it's full of its own contradictions too. and you know I got very captivated with his idea of what he calls socialist ecological civilization. Right, um, which is this real balancing act that tries to adequate existing, uh, the existing party line and its vocabulary as it existed at the time to the ch- to the apparent challenge of climate change, right? What it was what I what I thought was really interesting about it is that it gives such a different idea of the you know the international order that has to exist in order for you know climate change to be resolved, right? And it is not the order of the Paris Accords where you have all these countries coming together as equal players that are going to be negotiating over, you know, who's going to be reducing how much and over what, what period of time, right? His argument is that, you know, um, because China remains socialist to its very core, right? and because China remains the only sort of major existing socialist state after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, that's thesis one. Thesis two is that... Um, even though China plays and experiments with things that look like capitalism, it's still socialist in, in, in its sort of core. Um, uh, he argues that capitalism only necessarily generates environmental destruction, but because China is not capitalist, because China is still socialist, um, it, China alone offers the possibility of coming up with a way of resolving some of the environmental contradictions that now organize sort of planetary scale geophysics. Right? And he basically does this weird turnaround where, you know, he, he takes the point that now that China is the world's largest emitter, which is to say it has this outsized impact on all the things that we know to cause climate change. Um, he moves that from this sort of occasion for blaming China into this idea that all of a sudden the political apparatus for regulating emissions in China, which is the existence of the Chinese Communist Party and its state apparatus are now also the geophysical and chemical uh, atmospheric chemistry apparatus regulating the global climate, right? So I think it's, I, I thought it was really interesting because he was taking this idea and basically making the argument that the entire future of the planet per se requires the continued existence of the Chinese Communist Party, right? The Chinese Communist Party is now locked into the way that the global atmosphere and its dynamics are going to work, right? Which to me is actually this intense, um, it's like sort of, ethnographically really interesting right because you see at this moment all these people bending over backwards to try to figure out actually how to tell a different story of how climate change is going to work one that's completely focused on the future of china and not of the planet per se right there's this chinese reorientation of the global atmosphere um yeah but then also the articulation of this very different kind of planetary imaginary that you know isn't about all the countries of the world coming together as you know like liberal equal players to you know resolve the question, but really about the continued leadership and existence of the Chinese state apparatus, which I thought was really interesting too. So, yeah. uh,
1: great, thank you so much. Uh, in that vein, also. Continuing to talk about temporality, uh, but perhaps on a, no pun intended, more granular level, uh, I was really fascinated by the way in which you trace these sort of various bigger temporalities, um, but also work on a kind of quotidian level, especially in the chapters that are happening in Mongolia. So could you tell us a little bit more about these wind-sand temporalities as um, experienced by people who are, like I said, living in the spaces that are being experimented upon?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a really interesting and exciting chapter for when it came together for me, because I had all these sort of senses that like, you know, against this sort of these giant meta-narratives of planetary change, right? So especially against, you know, I, when I started thinking and writing my dissertation, it was kind of around the moment that the Anthropocene thesis was kind of being settled, right? Um, and sort of getting traction all across the humanities, especially, right? Um, I was really interested, actually, in how, you know, if the Anthropocene thesis is is offered as basically this way of making sense of the relationship between environmental and like political time, right? Um, this idea of you know before geology worked on its own, but now people you know act geo- geologically. You know, I wanted to think about some of the terms in which that thesis is being offered, right? The the sort of temporal interaction between geophysical and political formations right and then um try to think about that actually very ethnographically right in, in this much more granular way right where you wouldn't have to say that you know um our only ability to to give to tell these stories about the environment and its past and future to give shape to a kind of environmental temporality have to be these sort of giant meta stories right that that you know that require us to sort of you know talk about deep time in all these intense ways but also you know only ever arc toward you know these sort of apocalyptic futures right um and one of the things that sort of fascinated me like and so this comes out of research with field ecologists and uh, environmental engineers and people who are sort of in the scientific establishment in sort of chinese environmental sciences were charged actually with just like dealing with sand all the time, right? And trying to figure out ways of changing the ways that landscapes move and how they change. Right? Um, and really just thinking about the ways that, you know, their ideas and their ways of framing different sort of medium modes of futurity are sort of shaped in their actual interactions with sand as a material that they take seriously as a material. Right. And so um, one of the things that was really exciting for me was that actually these people, are constantly engaging in their sort of material interaction with these these sands that they have to figure out how to deal with, right? Um, But also because they're conditioned through both their disciplinary training as ecologists or as geologists or as physicists, right? Um, And also mostly many as members of the Communist Party, right? like, you know, um, that they were coming up with all these really interesting ways actually of narrating how landscapes change in a way that didn't require you know, this idea that the world was going to collapse in the coming future right um but also sort of upended some of the temporal assumptions of you know the way that we now tell sort of you know that we uh and like the liberal west tell stories about how environments change right um and so uh you know that was really exciting for me and really interesting and and you know the chapter at hand works through the juxtaposition of a bunch of different ways that people are telling these environmental stories and, and shaping environmental time, not all of which are, you know, end up in the same place, right? And so, one of the things I was also really interested in was, you know, um, actually, different peoples' engagements with materiality don't always yield the same outcome, right? Um, because social and you know, intellectual and epistemological histories continue to matter, right? And so, it's not just that you know, sand will give us a different story on its own, but the way that sand comes and you know, and people interact with it, and you know allow their imaginations to be shaped by it but also act on it right um you know uh actually produce this array of ways of asking into what the environments and what time is right um yeah and again they're interesting to me just in the same way as we were kind of talking about before because you know on the one hand, they're deeply grounded within some of the sort of political habits of, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, like uh, of living in the People's Republic of China, right, and its ways of talking about itself, right. Um, and they also depart from those in sort of interesting ways, right? Um, yeah. But then the question, like for me, then was really to think about time ethnographically through these people who are encountering sand as part of their daily labor.
1: Yeah, wonderful. Um, your book is so, uh, I think, like tightly argumented that all these questions, um, keep flowing out of each other. But, uh, as you were talking, uh, I, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about rethinking the nature of the political, right. And I think it's very much, um, interwoven in the way that you're talking also about temporality and sort of choices and, and different ways that choices are conditioned, right. By these experiments, um, So could you tell us what the relationship between these political infrastructures, which you, again, you make an intervention, right, to argue against certain accepted notions of how the Chinese government functions in an unequivocally oppressive way. Um, So, yeah, could you tell us a little bit about this political and the people and the spaces uh, interaction with with politics?
0: And thank you for bringing that up, because I think that one of the things that I think is like a kind of constant sort of worry and uh and something that i worry about in terms of like readerly habits are that like the idea of describing something is also like an endorsement of it right and so like i think that it's really interesting to think about you know um all the things that sort of are happening in china and the the ways that the chinese state is like experimenting and itself being reshaped through its encounter with these kinds of these new kinds of environmental and meteorological problems right but not necessarily to celebrate that as you know this like beautiful cultural alternative to the way that you know let's say like the way that the u.s works right i mean one of my concerns in this moment actually is that like you know um to to note the limits of some of our political imaginations in you know the united states and in the west is not therefore also to endorse things that are happening in other places right and so um it is important i think to to think about some of the histories and horizons um of the kinds of experiments that are happening right so uh, many of which involve actually sort of the perpetuation of these different kinds of historical and structural violence, right um especially by the people who are sort of you know reincorporated into the Chinese state experiments that are happening sort of at the local level, um, basically as moving parts in this like weather system, which is one of the the arguments I kind of make in the the first chapters, right? Um, All that aside is that like one of the things I was sort of interested in is like thinking about, well, going back to that question of like, you know, people think that authoritarianism uh, as like means that the state is rigid Right. And in fact, what I'm trying to think about all the time is that like, you know, the particular kind of authoritarianism that happens in what we're calling China's late socialism or its meteorological contemporary, is actually, it raises the question of if we think that, you know, if one of the arguments of this sort of, sort of, you know, starting kind of thoughts of this book is that, you know, these environmental and political processes are super dynamic like, you know, I'm obsessed with the ways that these landscapes change and, you know, how these weather systems sort of evolve in ways that sort of are both kind of anticipated, but also unexpected, right? Um, what would it mean for us to think about, you know, political formations that are also that dynamic, right? Um, uh and not to celebrate those as like you know we'll, we'll look at you know, you know like i think that there is a sort of weird impulse by some parts of the american left to want to celebrate sort of china as this like ready-made alternative <laughs> but that's not what i'm saying right i'm saying that like you know um like that to me feels like actually a kind of ahistorical historical and weird ideological position right um yeah but one of the things i was sort of interested in was like you know going back to sort of a question that kind of suvi had raised earlier right um one of the things i'm interested in is actually you know if we center the ability of the chinese state to be reshaped in its continuous encounter with both people and landscapes that it's trying to govern right instead of just saying that like the the state governs right in fact in the process of governing the state is being reshaped all the time right um and this comes up especially in the first couple chapters of the book i mean to me i think it's just that raises for us, interesting analytical and political questions of actually what does it it mean actually to think about, you know, um, the kinds of political formations that are going to be emerging in relationship to this planet that now we understand is changing all the time, right? And so um, that's some of the ways I was kind of thinking about this, you know. I I became very sort of, you know, um, moved to think about, you know, a series of kind of environmental arguments in China that are all about, you know, this is a kind of green authoritarianism that's all about exerting these extreme amounts of rigid control. And I think that like, this is a kind of green authoritarianism that's all about creating experimental flexibility, right? And I think that being able to take that seriously and to notice that as it happens, um, actually gives us a better kind of political purchase on having a sense of what's going on. Right. without falling into the sort of stereotype that, you know, um, it's, you know, authoritarianism means that nothing can happen, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and let me assure you that we are not proposing that you are an apologist for the Chinese Communist Party, nor does your book at all seem that way. Um, but I do think it gives us a much more nuanced understanding of, of how politics in China works, which is very welcome. Um, but Let's switch track a little bit now um, and move on to the second portion of your book, which was particularly interesting for me with coming from a background of um, literary and film and media studies. So you move also locales, right? We were moving into the city, into the spaces where the wind sand has come uh, from as it has been unmoored from the desert. Uh, And you write... Um, you ask, what is a literature or what does it mean to write a literature that stems from the experience of breathing? So I'm interested in a question of form here. Essentially, these, we have been talking about geophysical forms, political forms, how and, and human forms uh, also, which, especially as they come into focus here as kind of breathing within the city. So what is the relationship between all these forms um, and also propaganda forms? Like how does, is wind sand a type of formal relationship across these various registers?
0: That's such a good question and one that I'm not sure that I know how to answer. I said that I'll start this way by saying that um, the book is obsessed with questions of form, right? And part of it is because people tend to think about, you know, um, climate change as disorder Right, um, like like the like the the break of some existing form into a form of chaos, and people often tend to write about dust in the same way. Right, it's like dust as the opposite of form, rather than a form. You know, the, rather than sort of a process of form itself. Right, and so I started to think. I mean, part of the way that kind of my linguistic training, I think comes back all the time is that in certain ways, I'm very like, you know, I have like a kind of structuralist bent to my thinking. I'm looking for like forms on which to hang things, right? um. So the question of breathing and, you know, and, and how wind sand becomes a formal substance was actually like, I think very at the front of my mind as I was thinking about the sort of middle section of this book that really wants to think about Beijing, right? And to think about, you know, um. The kinds of formal experimentations and emergences that are kind of happening in relationship to wind sand now as this meteorological substance, whose main way that people interact with it is by breathing it, right? Um, this is you know I, I should say that I finished the first like actual manuscript of the book in the first month. Uh, during COVID lockdown, right when, when all of a sudden these questions of breathing and particulate matter and aerosols became very important, right, and it's a thing that I'm still really trying to think about how to process, right. Um, you know, the first couple of months, I think of COVID lockdowns felt very uncanny as somebody who had lived in China for a long time and especially had been writing about breathing in China for a long time, right, and so you know, um, uh, you know, the sections were the book is concerned with like masks and that sort of thing It's like, you know, they felt really weird to be writing a interview, you know, like to finish, to be finishing that in the first, you know, month of the, of the lockdown. Um, I guess I was interested in thinking about different kinds of political ways of thinking about the form of social and political collectivity as a sort of formal problem of how people relate to, uh, the geophysical dynamics of wind sand as a breathable substance, right? And so like, um, so I was trying to think, especially I think in chapter four, which is about these different visions of political collectivity that are being offered, right? Um, The chapter starts thinking about basically state propaganda that tries to imagine um, this idea that we're all commonly exposed to that air as basically a way that people are being asked to participate in a mode of polit- political collectivity that feels sorry for the state, right? That um, it doesn't see polit- air pollution as a problem that the state has to resolve, but rather sees the state as a victim of air pollution just in the same way that, you know, like everyday people are, right? And this is dramatized in the figure and these images of Xi Jinping breathing, right? Like, you know, um, uh, you know it was also very interesting in how breathing becomes you know the most sort of impossibly quotidian thing becomes political political spectacle right um in this moment yeah um and i was trying to think about you know well if we were to take seriously just the experience of breathing does this give us a way of speculating over modes of political collectivity that are neither the sort of um propaganda breathing thing right where it's like you know you have to identify with the state and work this all with this we're all in this together kind of mentality um it basically diffuses the possibility of politicizing air air pollution as a problem that the state needs to resolve right um, but also you know you know i lived i was conducting research and and you know one of the first kinds of uh the first years that it, major air pollution in Beijing was becoming kind of a problem. So I didn't actually mean to write the two chapters in the middle that are about Beijing, but I just happened to be there during my field work year. And I was like, oh, this, a thing was happening. Right. Um, and you know, at the time, uh, there was so much, um, sort of commentary from basically like China hands, like these like political scientists in the West were basically like, this is the moment, Uh, finally, where, you know, the experience of breathing bad air is going to make liberal civil society happen, right? And I was just trying to think about, you know, actually how impoverished both of these positions are as a way of thinking about the possibilities of social form, right? You get this like weird propaganda version that comes out of um, a manipulative version of sort of, you know, socialist manipulation. And then you also have this just fully unreconstructed idea of like democracy being about to happen. And in fact, I think that what was happening uh, at that time and what's continuing to happen, is actually much weirder, right? And so I want to sort, sort of lean into the weirdness of that, right? So I was thinking, yeah, how does breathing become a form of social relation, right? Um, breathing this thing that's not it's neither something you do actively nor passively, right. It, it doesn't fall into either the sort of heroic muscular agency of the liberal subject, nor does it fall into sort of, you know, other versions of sort of communist party mandated collectivity. Right. And so in those sections I was interested in, you know, actually, how does the air become the medium through which people, you know, come to a relationship with one another. Right. Um, But in weird ways, right, that that neither approximate, you know, liberal nor sort of unreconstructed communist ideas of what it means to relate to people and to be part of a political collectivity.
1: The more you talk, the more I see the influence of um, Alexei Yurchik's thinking about how uh, the Soviet Union fell, right? Uh, It comes across multiple times, but your book is quite different. Um, And I think it it really evolves that argument in really interesting ways that uh, are specific to China, right? Um, so, moving on, then c- continuing sort of in these urb- with urban forms. In the next chapter, you talk about the poetics of space. This idea, um, I'm actually the, the the thinker that you reference is Sorteau, right? And the idea of of kind of reclaiming space by walking through it, but. You, you also complicate that, right? Because there's, there's a kind of different poetic uh, going on here. So what are these poetics of particulate matter and how, what, what, what is the relationship between that and inhabiting um, city airs?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, an, it's like a sort of extension of the last question you asked, right? I think there, there were a lot of, and so, you know, how do I say this? I, I loved thinking what they started in this chapter. I kind of, you know, I started this chapter kind of for fun you know, I just really want to start thinking about um, different kind of filtration technologies and that sort of thing that were, that were really kind of exploding at that time, right? And and thinking about, you know, a lot of reading that I had done sort of in geography, in Chinese geography, I wanted to think about the form of the Chinese city, right? But it's always a sort of flat cellular form that thinks about the city, you know, the um, you know, in these sort of concentric rings that, that really preserve the idea of, like, flat city space, right? And one of the things that I was just, like, you know, having lived in Beijing during, you know, some of this time and, and just sort of thinking about kind of all the experiments that were kind of happening in the city at, all, uh, at that moment where, you know, um, in these events of sudden particular matter of which dust storms are just, like, the most intense version, right, um, all of a sudden... You see the city shift from you know from one modality of people living there into actually this very complex set of different ways that people are managing airspaces, right? How do you create you know how do you think about the cellular fragmentation of um, a city? into these three dimensional volumes that are defined actually by their differential levels of particular matter. And how is that technically accomplished and what kind of sensibilities toward urban space um, do people develop when the problem becomes actually, how do I think about creating spaces for the body and for other things um, that are really about managing the air as this, Thing that's a semi solid, right? The poetics of wind sand come back to he- come back here because you know, um, you have you know, I was really thinking about it in terms of like what are the the social, poetic, and technical conditions that people are intervening into air that they think about as being partly sand, right? Or it's partly particular matter, right? Air that is not just an emptiness but this substance that you can intervene in and that has th- th- these different gradients right and so that, that that was a really fun chapter for me to write because it was basically just starting to think about okay where are all the places where this is sort of happening right it happens you know um and and, and thinking about the different scales at which, this, which is which this is happening was really fun um and then in, in some way that's like sort of like you know the closest thing that i can you know do that I could think about doing as like a, a kind of love letter to to the Chinese city, right especially to Beijing and thinking about all actually the ways that you know the city is so interesting in these in these events of pollution because people come up with ways of actually, you know reconditioning air spaces and in the process coming up with these actually very practical theorizations of what living with particular matter is and what it and what that looks like and what it feels like you know and how we intervene on that. I yeah, I really like the question.
1: <laughs> Great. So if I can maybe offer one more extension um, before I p- finish my section here and turn the floor back to Suvi. Uh, I'm curious about mediation, right? You've used the word several times. Uh, for those who are listening, who are not anthropologists, but perhaps who are interested or pursuing media studies, I think the book will feel very familiar uh, in a lot of moments. So I just wanted to give you a chance to sort of... Tell us how um, you are engaging with media studies, in particular the way that envir- the environmental turn has sort of shifted attention. Um, I can think of many scholars who are working adjacent to you, but who are working in a very different discipline. So maybe, yeah, I question a question a little bit of, a little bit about your disciplinary approach here.
0: That's really great. I mean, you know, like one of the ways that I think about this project was that you know. I wanted to come up with an affirmative idea of what ethnography was that wouldn't just be about doing new anthropological field work. Right. And I was trying to think about, you know, how do you remain attentive actually to all the stuff, the diversity of stuff that's going on without being locked into this like very rigid methodological frame. Right. Part of that is just because like, you know, I think that, um, the cultural and sort of uh, environmental politics that emerge with wind sand actually invite this sort of wide-ranging set of materials that you have to deal with right um and part of that also is just that you know i think that there are certain sensibilities that i think i have as an ethnographer where i just want to you know sometimes read short stories or you know look at artwork and that sort of thing too right and i think that you know all of that has to be part of our understanding of, you know, there there are certain things that only some kinds of materials can offer you. Right. Um, And so I think that was, you know, that was really fun. You know, especially as the book goes on, it becomes a little bit less sort of committed to a very traditional style of anthropological writing and argumentation and also materials. Right. Um, Which is a sort of, you know, freedom that I allotted myself. Um, The thing that I I will say about, like, dealing with, like, environmental and media studies is that it wasn't a thing that actually I was thinking about too much when I was writing the book. But since the book has been sort of in process over the last couple of years, um, I've been reading more and kind of wishing that there are places – and seeing, like, there are a lot of places, actually, for engagement in ways that aren't sort of, you know, know, aren't too interested in disciplinarity, right? Um, I think that there's, you know – to, to come up with any sort of understanding or way of talking about the weather will require us to think uh, in ways that are not confined to, you know, um, a hard line between different kinds of traditions and sensibilities, right? The book I'm actually reading right now is Yuriko Furuhada's uh, book, Climatic Media. Um, so, you know, uh, and that is a book that came out uh Either after or just around the same time as mine did. I see you have it there too. Um and I wish I had read this book, you know, and been in conversation with uh for how work as I was doing this project. Cause I think it, you know, there would have been a lot of really I, I could have learned a lot from work like that. You know. Yeah. But for you know, for me, all I can say is that, you know, I was trying to invent a methodology as I was moving along, you know. Yeah. But you know, for me like there was just a lot of things where it's like, you know, oh here's a thing. That really you know if I you know here are some works of fiction or artwork or you know um, like that that really helped me think about something right and I was like well in the spirit of just like inviting the reader in and trying to trying to show how I got to my own thinking right like you know I think that it's like it feels reasonable and necessary to include that sort of stuff right Yeah. Whatever discipline needs to exist to be able to address some of the questions of sort of large scale environmental change now and into the future, whatever discipline that is, doesn't yet exist, I think. And so I think that I also took that as an invitation to be sort of, you know, um, a bit experimental in my own process.
2: Thank you, Jerry. Um, as an extension to that, um, you were just talking about inviting the reader into your book, and for me personally, one of the most exciting things about having a copy of your book and reading it was um, I was so excited to, to learn about the language that you use and just how you know you, you your your chapters weave poetry, art, um, incredible detailed descriptions of the people and places that you were working with, and um, it's. I really enjoyed how you have you, you have these apparatuses between the main chapters of your book, and from the very first one, um, Nightwind, um, it's this incredible choreography basically between your interlocutors, the Ties, and and this um, sandstorm that takes over their 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 home in the middle of the night, and how you all kind of dance around that, and um, it immediately invites. Brings grabs the reader into into your ethnography, and um, so I wanted to talk about this writing style and um, these apparatuses, in, in particular that you use to what you what you what you describe. You use them to disrupt the book's argument, but also to bridge the chapters. And quoting directly from your book, um, they be, they're exchanging them from one another, mimicking the jostle of, of a callistopic calistopic pattern into other arrangements. And um, I was just wondering if you could talk a bit more about this because in anthropology, um, there is a bit more freedom maybe to to explore different drains of of writing style. But, um, and while your book is theoretically inflected, it doesn't necessarily conform to other academic styles outside of anthropology. So maybe you could talk a bit more about the writing style the form that you, that you took on and how you've dealt with these issues as you've crafted your research.
0: Thank you. That's such a, that's such a nice question. And thank you for, thank you for saying all that. I, you know, I, part of it is that I just kind of feel like I can't write in a voice that's not my own. Right. And so I've, there's, 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 uh, that sounds much more like self-aggrandizing, but I, I mean, like, I'll say I'll say it this way. I mean, part of it was that, you know, I, I didn't want to fall all the things that sort of attracted me to wanting to be, you know, sort of, you know, a person who, who does research and writing as their sort of life was that, you know, I wanted it to be edifying, right. I wanted, you know, I wanted it to be, to feel like, you know, I was, I was doing something right. Um. And so I I don't have a ton of patience, I think, for the kind of professionalization of like one style that would need it to conform. I feel very lucky to be, you know, not only just like sort of in anthropology department, but I also teach in a highly interdisciplinary sort of uh, environmental studies institute, where I think that some of the questions of genre are kind of up for grabs, like, you know, like, and one of the reasons I really like um, thinking with people on environmental topics is because, you know, if the conversation is necessarily inter- interdisciplinary, then there's no specific way that a text has to look or you know, argue what has to happen. That said, I mean, a lot of the book was like, you know, I was like, well, I want to write something that felt like, you know, um, it was accountable to, you know, to kind of like who I was when I first started this, right? And not to be so um, bound up in, uh, especially the intense pressure for something like a book to be basically this token of professional advancement, right? I wanted to kind of resist that, right? And so um, some of the ways that I did that was like, well, you know, I just insisted that it would be poetry all through the book most of it would be queer and asian american just like for no reason <laughs> except that i wanted it right um and i think that you know i i gave myself a space for that kind of indulgence when i thought you know you know it was doing something for the book um the form of the book to come back i mean so the the individual chapters you know actually almost the entirety of the book comes out of these little individual writing exercises that i did right so for instance, like the first, like most of the apparatuses are sat, like I sat down and wrote them in one go, right? As basically little exercises that I was doing. And then, you know, of course they, wrote, they get edited later, right? And I was trying to think about what to do with these these things that felt like really important to me because they were things that kind of shaped my thinking about how the, the kind of general argument and uh, form of the book was gonna work, but didn't necessarily fit into any chapter, right? Um, and again, I, I just went back and I started to think about actually the sort of formal properties of wind sand as this thing that you know, um, for all of the people involved, myself, but you know, all the my interlocutors, it's this this substantial relationship that the moment where it seems to be becoming one thing, it can shift form and become something else, right? It's defined by the ways that it breaks apart and fall and, and, and becomes something else, right? And I want to think about that sort of formal property by which you know. A pasture can become a sand dune, can become a cloud, can become, you know, fallout, can become all these different things. These transitions of form, I want to think about actually ways of kind of making that sort of echoed in the in the structure of the text, right? And so um, these bridge chapters are really trying to do that, right? They're trying to to create relationships between the different chapters, but in a way that it's about reconfiguration, right? Rather than the smooth, you know, I didn't want to come up with a single teleological argument, right? That, you know, um, and have a narrative form that went that way, right? Because if you took wind sand seriously, it's not a teleological material. It's a it's, it's, it's a it's a thing that for me only makes sense in relationship to the different forms that it can take that are all versions of itself and yet are irreducible to one thing, right? And so that's kind of how I was thinking about it. You know, Um, yeah. And I was really lucky basically to be surrounded by people who, you know, um, who, who allowed me to, uh, have writing and, um, style themselves also be experimental. Right. Um, and it really took a lot of time for me to get to a a point where, you know, um, I felt like the style of the book felt like it worked and it was also in the kind of voice that I felt was necessary to, to be able to, to say something, right? Because I did want to catch some of actually, you know, the wonder of the whole situation, right? And, you know, this sort of expansive feeling um, and not let that be sort of filtered out by the demands of academic publishing. That's you know, so why I sort of insist on that.
2: That sounds so refreshing to hear um, as somebody who's basically in the, in, in the middle of, of many years of trying to write my own book. And I'm sure many, I'm sure maybe Julia also can, this resonates with her and many of the listeners as well. Um, definitely. I mean, that wonder definitely we, reads through the chapters. And just now you're talking about this idea of being accountable of who you were. I think that's, that's really meaningful. Um, and that requires time, that requires patience and and a lot of thinking and, and and honesty and presence um which which as you kind of were, were talking about it really isn't always given space for in, in academic in an in academic career so um it's, it's just really refreshing to, to hear hear you talk about that um and and basically hopefully there'll be other opportunities to, to hear more about um the writing approach you've taken on and and how you got to where you are with your work um and your and your writing form um but for now we've taken up a lot of your time Jerry. so before we end today's episode we wanted to ask you about uh, what kind of current projects are you working on what are you thinking about what are you doing um since continent and dust um has been published
0: thank you yeah i've been writing i mean it's like it's hard to know what to do after a first book there's a real sort of postpartum feeling after it and you know um, it's sort of interesting to me right now because I feel like on some level I feel like I haven't had like a new thought in 10 years that wasn't just about wind and sand and so I'm kind of in that moment I mean you know because I think part of um, so most of my writing and I think this has to do with the book basically being finished in the first couple months of you know the pandemic right and especially in that very strange mode of lockdown um a lot of my writing has been um about grief um and so i've been thinking a lot about um grief and geology especially so i've been writing more about art um especially the work of a geological artist named alana Halperin, and thinking about sort of landscape and terrestrial emergence as a sort of property of grief. So that's a thing that Mm I've been kind of thinking about. And thinking about it really through different kinds of artworks. Um, I've been writing also a bit about how sort of, you know, COVID-19 and Asian racialization sort of work together, right? And thinking about what would it mean to recuperate spaces of grief um, in that, right? And I think that a lot of my writing since... Uh, this book has been actually trying to process, in the way that felt okay to me, um, just the experience of living through COVID nineteen as an Asian person in you know in the U S and you know and in Canada, right and I tried to think about what that would require of us right, as scholars to actually to, to sort of think through um, and, and really to think slowly about it without jumping to some of the more sort of immediate arguments about, you know, you know racism and violence, right? I, I, so I've been really trying to, you know, so it's been weird and therapeutic in the meantime. I've been doing some nonfiction writing, which is coming out soon. So, you know, so uh, nonfiction um, and sort of creative nonfiction shorts, um, which is coming out in literary journals, which is a new thing. Um a lot of my work right now I think is focused on sort of weather modification, um, especially sort of uh cloud seeding and conspiracies <laughs> about you know clouds and the weather, right? Um so I'm there's part of me that's wanting to keep on tracing out sort of work on the weather. And I'm trying to think about that in sort of diasporic spaces of Chinese in addition to just you know China itself. Um, and then there's a little bit of work that I am trying to do in thinking about sort of historical Chinese migration as a land-making process, right? And so uh, I've been trying to think with people like Catherine Yusof, who is sort of um, a geography scholar who really wants to think about race and geology as, you know, and geological formations. Um, right. And so I have another sort of side project where I'm thinking about sort of collisions of racialization, capital, and sort of geophysical properties, and how we can understand sort of um, geophysical emergence in very specific places of diaspora and investments um, as and in relationship to racial formation um, and sort of the longer trajectories of China as a sort of international actor. That's where I'm I'm at right now. Yeah. But mostly grief. <laughs> as we all are, I'm guessing.
2: Um I'm I'm glad you're saying that with 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 laughter as well, although these are really heavy, heavy topics. Um what kind of platform where where can um we kind of follow the, these different um projects that you're working on? It seems like there's so much going on and um like do you have a, a blog or a website where do you usually post all
0: these different don't I don't post things anywhere. I try my best to stay off social media. <laughs> so there's right, that.
1: Yeah.
0: And then um, you can check out my professional website at Princeton. It's z.princeton.edu, um, which is very sparsely updated, but every now and then I will put stuff up.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> but if you want to we'll find me, you can.
2: Stalk you in some other way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, we really. I'm sure everyone who's listening really looks forward to hearing more about how all of these projects unfold. Um, but for now, um, Julie and I want to thank you for putting time aside and for joining us to talk about um, your work. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been a great conversation.
0: Thank you both so much, and it's good to see you.
2: Um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.